Hello and welcome to Peach Pod, a Georgia politics podcast. My name is Kyle Hayes and I am your host. And the gang is back together this week. I am joined by Luke Boggs. Luke, how are you doing? I'm done with finals. Oh, it's like you're seeing a whole new world. Whole new world. Oh, I almost did that. <laughs> and that other voice you hear is Megan Payne. Megan, how are you? Hey, I'm doing well. Um, I'm done with a project for work. A whole Not new as world. exciting as Luke. I'm always happy to check things off the, my never-ending to-do list. So on this week's podcast, uh, for our first topic, we have a conversation to share with you that I had with State Senator Jen Jordan earlier this week. Uh, Senator Jordan joined the podcast to tell us about the likelihood that women could get prosecuted under House Bill 481, the abortion ban bill that Governor Kemp signed last week. Um, so she kind of walked us through the legal ins and outs of uh, what is going to happen next with that bill and the likelihood that women could get prosecuted. It's a little wonky, but I think it dives into um, a lot of the uncertainty about what the future of this bill is and how it would be implemented if it makes its way through the court and ultimately becomes the law in our state. For our second topic this week, we're going to talk about the indictment of Insurance Commissioner Jim Beck. Uh, earlier this week, he was indicted by a federal grand jury uh, under allegations that he defrauded an insurance agency, which happens to be his job as insurance commissioner uh, to not do things like that. It, it, it stems back to contact. It stems back to conduct before he was elected, uh, but it is certainly not a good look for him. So we'll talk about his future in that case going forward. And then for our final topic this week, it was veto day uh, last week for Governor Kemp, and he issued his first round of vetoes. Some of the high-profile bills that he vetoed, he vetoed the bill that would have allowed citizens to sue the state to challenge laws. He vetoed a mandatory recess bill uh, for schools. He vetoed a bill that allows or he vetoed a bill that would expand the analysis of tax breaks, which is kind of a wonky but important fiscal issue for the state. Um, so we're going to talk through the vetoes that he issued and uh, whether or not we agree with uh, some of the characterizations I've seen that uh, Governor Kemp had a particularly aggressive veto pen. Um, I myself thought it was pretty mild, but we will get to that in the last topic in this show. Uh, but first, let me turn it over to my conversation with State Senator Jen Jordan. Uh, so here we are. All right. So joining the podcast today is Jen Jordan, a state senator representing parts of Cobb and Fulton counties. Jordan is an attorney and has been an outspoken critic of the six-week abortion ban that Governor Kemp signed into law last week. We wanted to learn a little bit more about her view of the impacts of this bill. So Senator Jordan, welcome to the program. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. Um, so House Bill 481 is a bill that bans abortion beginning at six weeks and only contains exceptions for rape, incest, and the life of the mother. It was signed by Governor Kemp last week, but it doesn't go into effect until January 1st, 2020, and it's anticipated that it will be tied up into the 
in the courts. So Senator Jordan, you've argued that if this law ultimately goes into effect, it's possible that women could be prosecuted if they get an abortion. This would be a departure from the typical stance of anti-abortion policymakers who normally claim that only the doctor who performed the procedure should receive legal penalties. So can you lay out your case for why you think women are liable to get prosecuted under this bill? Yeah, um, I, I think, number one, you have an affirmative defense from criminal prosecution. Um, and I remember when I saw that, I thought, what is going on here? And so specifically, Kyle, um, and, and for those that aren't lawyers, an affirmative defense is really a defense that someone can use to basically say that, you know, I may have done something that's unlawful, but because of this circumstance, then it relieves me of uh, criminal liability under the law. And the best known example that we have of that is self-defense, right? So you can kill someone, but you can have an affirmative defense that it was done in self-defense. And so the whole idea there is that, you know, there is some kind of mitigating thing going on. And so the thing that caught my attention first with 481 was the fact that there is actually an inclusion an inclusion for an affirmative defense for women for prosecution in a very specific instance. And, you know, no one can really um, answer the question for me, the, the folks who say, well, we don't think it's, it's going to, you know, open up criminal prosecution, but nobody can answer the question for me, then then why include an affirmative defense from criminal prosecution um, for women if if that, in fact, was not the intent of the members of the General Assembly? So that's kind of the first thing. Um, And then I'll tell you the thing for me in terms of evidence of why I know that this is true. It's because I tried to put an amendment onto 481 that expressly said that, you know, pregnant women... um, for women generally, will not be criminally prosecuted. And that was rejected by the Republican majority. So what that says to me is that, you know what, there was a real intent here. Now, whether they did it well in terms of the language is another, you know, question entirely. Um, But I definitely think that was the intent um, of the people who sponsored the bill and ultimately who passed it. You have one piece of it which is this affirmative defense. And then I've read that sort of another piece of it is the personhood provision of this bill. And I've read that basically the personhood provision of the bill opens up the criminal code as it applies to all people so that a person who, for instance, caused the death of a fetus could be charged for murder as if they had caused the death of a of a normal person. Is that right in your view? And what are the implications of the personhood element of this law? Well, it's definitely possible. And I mean, and I think that was the whole point of it. So that's the reason that we saw them add too many other things to it in terms of making sure that fertilized eggs were, you know, enjoyed the same tax status as minor dependents do, or why that even in the civil world, we've opened up liability with respect to, um, you know, I mean, fertilized eggs and zygotes and and basically recognize them as full human beings. It really isn't enough in a lot of the the people who are pushing the personhood um, kind of thing for you just to say it. 
you actually have to mean it in the law, and you mean it um, by kind of carrying it out through the law entirely. And so that's why they put, and this is in, this is in like the first title of the Georgia Code, which kind of has the basic kind of definition of, um, you know, things that we'll see in the code over and over. And that's where you see that natural persons now includes basically any fertilized egg in the womb at any point in time. And so that absolutely does open up kind of the general criminal law. Now, I've seen some criticism to say, well, you know, there, there are these different statutes, whether it be uh, feticide and the like, that expressly exclude prosecution of women for that. And, then, and that's right, too. I mean, if there is a criminal law that has an exclusion as to a pregnant woman, then, yeah, they can't be um, prosecuted or indicted under that provision. But that doesn't necessarily mean that they can't be, um, you know, indicted under another. Now, and I'm not saying that it would be a successful prosecution, but I think that's what's kind of getting lost here is that what we're talking about are the possibilities that could happen under this law, especially if it's in the wrong hands um, in terms of a partisan, you know, prosecutor or someone who's, you know, maybe got some personal views that, that really they're trying to push. Yeah. What role does prosecutorial discretion play in the implementation of this bill? Do you think that it that it opens it up just for aggressive prosecutors that like your run-of-the-mill prosecutor probably wouldn't consider uh, uh, issuing charges on a woman who'd gotten an abortion, but a you know particularly aggressive prosecutor would? Or how does the sort of the authority that's given to prosecutors to make these kind of decisions, how do you think that that plays in here? Well, well, it absolutely does. And I think we even see it at the national level, right? Like we see what it means when you have a prosecutor who seems to be working more, you know, with, with a partisan kind of focus versus a prosecutor who may not be. And the prosecution um, and charging decisions that are made by these, these men and women um, you know, when they are colored by some kind of personal religious view or some kind of partisan view, I mean, you absolutely see disparate charging decisions made. I mean, look on Twitter just with respect to the purported obstruction um, charges. You know, you had partisans on one side say, never would I ever charge the president with that. And you had partisans on another saying they would. And they're dealing with the same facts and the same law but through a specific lens and then through, you know, with something specifically in mind in terms of, you know, politically, I mean, you see it's a completely different way that a prosecutor could go. And so, and, and that is the problem with prosecutorial discretion. Like, it's a good thing because we want prosecutors to really be able to take in the facts of a given case, but it's a bad thing because sometimes they're not motivated you know, by the best angels when they're making those charging decisions. So I don't think that it is a leap or hyperbolic to say that you could see a situation where you could see a prosecutor trying to use this law to prosecute a woman. And we know that because it's happened before. I mean, we saw it in Hillman v. State, and that was before we had any personhood issues. So now we've got completely different language, even 
within the abortion criminal statutes, now we have this personhood language that imbues, you know, fertilized egg with all the rights and privileges of any walking or talking Georgian. I mean, you can see a prosecutor thinking that they have the power um, and that they should go after women, um, you know, who seek or who get an abortion. And that's a really scary kind of thing to think about. And this, I'm not saying this to scare people. What I'm really wanting to do is say, look, this isn't going to go into effect legally because the courts are going to stop it. But we have really got to be paying attention from an electoral standpoint to make sure that if this law does come back from the Supreme Court, that we have different men and women sitting in the seats in the House and the Senate and in the governor's mansion to make sure that this law never becomes effective and can hurt people. So I want to come back a little bit to one of the criticisms of, and I don't think this was specifically directed at you, but the criticisms of the view that women could be prosecuted because the personhood provision opens up the criminal code so much. Um, Matthew Cavadon, who's a criminal defense attorney from Gainesville, he wrote in All on Georgia today that the personhood provisions in the law do not directly amend the statutes that prohibit criminal acts such as murder and that courts are loath to expand criminal responsibility without a clear legislative command. Now, I read that argument and I was still thinking about prosecutorial discretion and, and well, you know, the, the first the first step here seems to me to be the decision that a prosecutor could make. What do you think of that argument against your view? And where, if if that piece doesn't affect prosecutorial discretion, where is the backstop uh, for um, something in the, the legal system to say that this statute doesn't actually do what you, Senator Jordan, might be arguing that it does? So the only backstop is the appellate courts. Right. I mean, that's the problem. You would have to have um, a woman be prosecuted, you know, indicted, prosecuted, investigated. And, you know, that would have to go up through the system. I mean, that's what happened in the Hillman v. State case where you had the 18 year old, you know, single girl um, shoot herself in the abdomen and the prosecutor, you know, tried to indict her. Um, for criminal abortion. And then you had the court really try to intuit, you know, the General Assembly's intent by the language, right? By saying, well, they're looking at it in the third person, so they must not mean to extend it to women. Well, that's the problem. The problem is because the language has changed so much through the years, you could see the same type of appellate court say, you know what, I don't think there's any doubt that the intent here was to now, you know, apply general kind of, you know, criminal statutes um, to this type of situation. I mean, I could argue it either way. And that's just it. I mean, good lawyers can argue this to their blue in the face either way. I mean, I can, you know, that's what we do. But that's the problem. The problem is, is that there is a legitimate argument to be made on both sides. And that means that there's going to be a significant gray area, um, not only for women, but physicians and, and honestly, prosecutors or criminal defense attorneys. I mean, so the only way, um, you know, to kind of clear it up is, A, 
you know, let's repeal this thing or make sure it never goes into effect. Um, or, or B, I mean, we're just going to have to see how it plays out in the courts. And I don't think that seeing how it plays out in the courts um, is something any of us really want to see happen. Did these criticisms come up uh, among Republican supporters of this bill during the legislative session, during the debate over this bill? I, I know you said that you tried to introduce an amendment that protected women from prosecution, but did Republicans know about these criticisms and, and how did they react if they knew about them? Absolutely. I mean, when, when I made the criticism that it was going to subject women to criminal prosecution, they said, oh, don't worry, we have an affirmative defense for certain situations. And I'm like, you know, at first, I mean, honestly, Kyle, at first I thought it was, I thought it was a, a mess up, right? That maybe they just didn't understand the implications of the wording and kind of what they were doing. And then what became clear is that that was not it at all. That in fact, that was exactly what they were trying to do. I mean, and when that realization comes upon you, that's when you start to say, okay, this isn't just a fluke. This isn't a mistake in drafting or kind of a misunderstanding of, of the way the law works. I mean, this was intentional. I mean, it's intentional because in terms of the personhood movement, um, the people who support this movement really do believe that women should be prosecuted for murder. I mean, that is part of that movement. And so, you know, when we see that kind of adopted into our law, I mean, you know, we we all need to be paying very close attention to this. I mean, because this is real. And, you know, maybe they didn't get it right this time exactly. Maybe there are some criticisms of exactly the way the language is. But that just means they're going to kind of come back and make sure that they do it right the next time. Um, so shifting gears a little bit here, you requested that Attorney General Chris Carr issue a legal pin, legal opinion on this law. Can you describe that request and what you expected it to find? And would that uh, legal opinion have considered federal laws and court rulings or only uh, laws and court rulings at the state level? It would have included both. And the reason that I was seeking it specifically is because there is law in Georgia and this is interesting to me as a lawyer, it may get a little in the weeds for you, but there is there are rulings in Georgia that say that if a law is unconstitutional on at the point in time that it's passed, that even if something were to happen um, later on, that would somehow you know make it constitutional. For example, in this instance, even if the Supreme Court were to somehow pull back, you know, the um, restrictions, you know, or, or pull back kind of some of the tenets of, of Roe v. Wade and Casey, um, then even if, you know, it kind of becomes constitutional, arguably, you have to judge its constitutionality as of the day that it's passed. Um, and if it's unconstitutional as of the day that it's passed, then it literally has to go back through the reenactment process, meaning that it would have to be filed again, it would have to pass the House again, and it would have to pass the Senate again and be signed by the governor, whomever that person is at that point in time. So for me as a lawyer, I'm trying to make a record so that when and if the worst case scenario happens, let's say the Supreme Court sends it back down to Georgia and says, you know, this is a state's rights issue, 
um, that they that we have recourse, that we have the ability to say no, even if you know kind of the Supreme Court lay of the land has changed at the point in time that it was passed, it was unconstitutional under existing precedent, um, and therefore it would have to be reenacted. And you know, so basically, I'm just trying to make the record so that when we get to that point, you know, God forbid we ever do, that we're ready to go again to make sure that this law never never sees the light of day. For our listeners that uh, may be less familiar with the legal process for how all this is going to play out, what's the process in the legal system for this bill moving forward? It doesn't go into effect until January 1st of 2020. So will we see anything happen before then? Yeah, I mean, normally these these go into effect pretty quickly, but because of the tax provisions, it had to start on the new tax year. So um, in some ways, that's good because I do think it's a complicated piece of legislation. I was looking at Alabama's law earlier um, and just comparing it, and Georgia's is much broader, um, a lot more nuances, um, and has a much kind of wider net. So I think it's going to give people, opponents, and, and really legal experts the time and the ability to kind of dig through it. I mean, I think you've already seen, you know, just on social media or within the legal community in Georgia, that you've got lots of people disagreeing on what this means or doesn't mean. And so this is just going to give people time and space to kind of figure it out, kind of the best way to attack it. Um, but I would I would assume that, you know, it would happen pretty, you know, Probably within the fall, that's my guess, that there would be a lawsuit filed um, and the bill, the law would be enjoined from going into effect. And you file it at the district court level, which is the federal trial court level. It would be filed here in Atlanta, the Northern District. It would be enjoined pretty quickly. And then the process of going up through the appellate, federal appellate system starts. And so From the federal district court, it would go to the 11th Circuit, which is actually considered one of the most conservative circuits um, in the country. And then from the circuit court, um, you would have the losing party, whomever, whatever side that is, assuming it's the state of Georgia, um, apply for certiorari to the Supreme Court of the United States. Now, that is a discretionary decision. Um, and the Supreme Court can take whatever it wants or not take whatever it wants. But I think that's why you've seen all of these um, laws, all these bills filed and the laws passed in so many of these um, kind of stronghold Republican states, because what they're really wanting to do is kind of have all of these um, kind of hit the Supreme Court at the same time so that the Supreme Court feels that there is really a need um, to address you know, these bills in this situation, um, because there's just so much pressure on them from so many different circuit courts. So really, it's a very calculated legal strategy. I mean, this isn't just, you know, somebody decided to file this one day because they thought it was the right thing. I mean, this is really a very strategic, calculated approach to trying to, you know, dismantle Roe v. Wade and Casey. And to wrap up here, what do you make of the the structure of Georgia's bill, maybe as it compares to other bills that are moving through the process in other states, do you think that the focus on personhood or any other specific provisions in the bill makes it more likely that the Georgia bill would either be the one that gets taken up by the Supreme Court or make it more likely to pass muster with the court if the court considers it? So 
I was looking at, and this is why I wanted to look at the Alabama one too. I think all of these fetal heartbeat or alleged fetal heartbeat bills all have a personhood aspect to them. But I think because the six week thing was so, it kind of flew in the face of what people knew scientifically. I think folks focused on that and didn't pay attention to the personhood aspects of it. But even Alabama's has kind of the personhood language in it. Um, but what's interesting is that Alabama's has a very explicit um, exemption for criminal and civil prosecution of cases against women. So it's almost like they they knew what they were doing when they add the personhood language. So they made sure that they kind of covered their bases in terms of not prosecuting women um, or even opening up civil liability with respect to women. Georgia's is very different. I mean, Georgia's is incredibly broad in terms of what it does. I mean, the civil liability part of it is something that hasn't been talked about a lot. Um, I mean, it really, any woman who suffers a miscarriage, you know, I mean, I know this kind of sounds ridiculous, but you could see a class action um, against a soda company for, you know, putting caffeine in their, you know, sodas because they know that caffeine can cause miscarriages. I mean, it really treats a, um, a fertilized egg, like I said, I mean, anybody could file a lawsuit to get the full value of a human life, you know, if they miscarry. And so that's much broader than where we've seen anywhere else. Um, I think the tax stuff is much broader. I mean, Alabama's doesn't do that. Um, even the, the child support, you know, the pseudo child support provisions are much broader. And then, of course, the criminal kind of opening up the criminal prosecution of women um, really takes this particular law to the next level. And I'll tell you, because of the criminal, the possible criminal prosecution of women, um, I think that's what makes Georgia's law um, probably one of the worst. And, you know, definitely in line to, you know, kind of get the golden ring and call from the Supreme Court to be looked at. But you got to be a little careful because if you go too far, which I think they've done here, um, you know, it could result in a reaffirmation of some of the basic tenets of, um, you know, a woman's right to privacy under the Constitution. All right. Well, Senator Jordan, is there anything else that's worth adding to this discussion before we go? You know, I just want to make it clear that, you know, we are talking about this from a legal perspective, and I know that there are a lot of women hearing a lot of different things, um, disparate opinions, and it's just incredibly important for people to understand that, A, this law, even even if it were legally sound, doesn't go into effect until January 1 of 2020, but even then, um, I don't think it's going to go into effect, and I just don't want people to be scared. I want them to feel free to call their health care providers, um, and if they, you know, need to seek advice or any kind of, you know, the provision of any kind of health care, then, then I really want them to do that, that, you know, just by talking about the possibilities that may or may not happen, and in my mind won't, um, you know, I just don't want people to be scared and not seek the care and treatment that they need. Alrighty. Well, Senator Jordan, thank you so much for joining the show and walking us through this really complicated legal topic and, and for that good reminder at the end that this is a bill that has not yet gone into effect and chan- and there's a chance that it uh, never will. Um, so thank you so much for joining the podcast. Thank you. I appreciate it, Carl. So thank you to Senator Jordan for joining 
the show um, is interesting. When we talked on Tuesday, we were actually talking while Alabama was debating their total ban on abortion in that state. Um, that was a bill that passed on Tuesday, and Alabama Governor Kay Ivey signed it on Wednesday. So the theocracy is moving through the South and headed for other Republican locations near you, unfortunately. Gilead um, is growing. So let's turn to our second topic this week. So on Tuesday, a federal grand jury indicted Georgia Insurance Commissioner Jim Beck, and the indictment that was released uh, detailed a scheme where uh, Beck, before he was elected as insurance commissioner over a period of several years, set up four separate companies that issued invoices to the Georgia Underwriters Association. And uh, those invoices were for work that was allegedly never performed and allowed him to uh, pocket over $2 million from the organization. Beck used that money to pay his credit card bills, to pay his taxes, and to even fund his campaign for insurance commissioner. Uh, Today, on Wednesday morning, he turned himself in to uh, investigators, and he issued a not guilty plea. And then this afternoon, Wednesday afternoon, uh, Governor Brian Kemp requested his resignation. Uh, There was some question as to whether he would do that. uh, But Kemp seemed to look at the, the charges that were levied against Beck and decided that they were close enough to his job as insurance commissioner uh, that it was going to undermine his ability to do the job. Um, So he asked for that resignation, and we will see if Beck complies. Um, Luke, let's start with uh, your reaction to this indictment. What did you make of uh, the charges and and this uh, behavior that was described in this indictment? I would say the Commissioner Beck is in some pretty deep trouble. Uh, The first thing I would highlight uh, in this is that the U.S. attorney who is working on this case and brought these charges is B.J. Pack. And for people who have followed Georgia politics for a long time, you'll remember that B.J. Pack was a very long time uh, state representative from the state of Georgia. He was also the first Korean-American in our state legislature and from what wikipedia says also the first uh georgia's first asian american u.s attorney so like he was someone who i remember when i was at the state capitol i always found very impressive seemed like a good attorney he's a hardcore republican so the fact that he has brought these charges against the a sitting republican statewide office holder that tells me that whatever they have is pretty serious. Um, you know, this was obviously a, a federal case, so it involved grand jury. So we don't really know too much about the evidence that they have against him. But just the fact that like BJ Pack is behind this makes me think that it's probably pretty serious and that uh, they have some good evidence on Beck. And the other thing I found pretty astonishing that just like backs up that view is I feel like the Republican uh officials like Kemp like Jeff Duncan were quicker to say Beck you need to step down and leave than the Democrats were and so on on that front this seems to be very very serious for Commissioner Beck yeah I think I saw the first call from a Republican for Beck to step down uh, this morning it was from a former state representative Buzz Brockway uh, but then those calls from the lieutenant governor and from the governor started to pour in afterwards. And basically everybody is kind of ready for Beck to be shown the door. Megan, what was your reaction to seeing this indictment? Well, I honestly didn't have a whole lot of context around it when I first found out about it. I remember when we were talking about it in our Slack channel, I was like, wait, hang on. What? 
what's going on here. So I definitely want to call out AJC's The Jolt for some really comprehensive coverage that allowed me to figure out what the heck the Georgia Underwriters Association even was. Um, but now that I ha- I'm a little bit more educated about it, I am I'm glad he was indicted if this turns out to be true. And also, I think I agree with Luke that it's it's interesting to see um, the Republicans come down a little bit harder on him than perhaps the Democrats did initially. So given that I've already admitted that I you know, have just done some studying on it. Kyle, would you mind explaining to me and to our listeners what exactly this entails? Yeah, so the indictment alleges that over a period of several years, Jim Beck instructed friends and colleagues of his Uh, He typically approached them by saying he had a business opportunity for them. He instructed them to set up separate companies that would then bill the Georgia Underwriters Association for services performed related to high-risk property insurance. And so these are things like assessments and um, sort of on-site things that are typical to property insurance. Uh, But these companies billed the Georgia Underwriters Association for work that was allegedly never done. And then uh, Beck pocketed that money uh, in a sum of over $2 million from the Georgia Underwriters Association, and then ran some of that money through two companies that he was in charge of. One was this company called Creative Consultants. And the second one was the Georgia Christian Coalition, an organization that he took over and that gave him a platform uh, to be a prominent social conservative or prominent Christian conservative in the state. Um, That money eventually made its way to Beck and Beck used that money to pay off his credit card bills, to pay his uh, state and federal taxes and to fund his campaign for insurance commissioner, uh, which is really interesting because I kind of vaguely remember this uh, and was reminded of it looking back that Beck largely self-funded his Uh, campaign for insurance commissioner in the early stages. And he was not the uh, preferred pick of the insurance industry. Um, But he so he kind of won that primary in surprising fashion. um, And then ultimately won a pretty close election uh, for insurance commissioner in the general last November. Um, So through those companies, he pocketed that money and then used it to fund his campaign, which is just super rich, given that it was a campaign for insurance commissioner. And he uh, did it by defrauding an insurance organization that was established by the state, uh, because there wasn't a robust private market for this high risk property insurance. Um, So that I think contributes somewhat to because none of this occurred while he was insurance commissioner at all predates it even predates really the general election. Um, the indictment said that it stopped, I believe, in the summer of 2018. Um, but because what he was doing was defrauding an insurance agency, and his role as insurance commissioner is to regulate insurance agencies, I think this is part of why Governor Kemp laid out the laid out his request for Beck to resign today without having to think much about it, uh, because it definitely interfered with the work that he does in his elected position. Which just harkens back to Kemp being asked to resign as Secretary of State. Well, well, Kyle, don't we want the guy who knows how to defraud the insurance industry running the insurance industry? <laughs> won't he Won't he defraud insurance for us? 
I mean, that's the best uh, argument for Donald Trump as president. The, though, the thing, strangely enough, uh, you know, uh, we almost, you know, talked about Beck for some other reasons since he was also about to go after some insurance companies. So the timing of this is also pretty interesting on that. Well, front. that that was my immediate reaction actually before reading the indictment or before understanding. Two days prior to the indictment coming out. Uh, there was an AJC headline that said uh, Beck, as insurance commissioner, was alleging that Blue Cross Blue Shield, uh, one of the state's largest insurance companies, violated the law. And I don't actually know what the charge is. It's it's not relevant to this. But I saw the headlines kind of back to back one day from the other. And I was like, man, getting indicted is what happens when you try to regulate insurance companies in this state. Yeah, it's really interesting that you're talking about like how he got elected to this office and, you know, the allegations that he was using the money cuz I as you were talking about that, I looked it up and so he won his primary with 59.69% of the vote. So he's one of the few heavily contested since there was three candidates in total uh, uh statewide races that didn't go to a runoff. And then the other really interesting thing is um I was talking to some of my friends because uh, Jim Beck is from Carrollton, and they, they said that he kind of had a reputa- reputation for doing shaggy things. And it seems like that kind of got picked up by the electorate, too, because uh, Donnie Foster, who was the libertarian candidate in the insurance commissioner race, got 2.65% of the vote, which was the highest that any of the libertarian candidates got. And then besides the governor's race, the insurance commissioner race was one of the closest ones uh, of the statewide races, which I remember um people saying that and being like a little confused about why that happened so maybe uh this controversy shows that some people are kind of aware of uh beck's issues well and since they were aware of his issues i wonder what this ultimately says about the georgia christian coalition um beck took over from leader sadie fields when she was ousted by the national organization and the chapter never really recovered from that. And now Beck's running it. And all of a sudden, he's running into the ground again, because as a leader, he's been problematic. So that just has a lot gives me a lot of question marks about an organization that is purportedly Christian, which to me suggests morals. Well, and it also may be that they're actually not all that big a player in Georgia politics right now. I was listening to Political Rewind today and Lieutenant Governor Jeff Duncan was on and he said that he had to look up the Georgia Christian Coalition uh, to understand who that group was. It, you know, it it is in his favor to not be super familiar with a group like that. But this wasn't a group like Georgia Right to Life who was weighing in on the abortion ban bill. Um, I don't know that they, and I had actually never heard of them prior to this either. I don't know that they are a uh, big player within Republican politics, but they were the platform by which Beck sort of became a, uh, I don't want to say beloved, but he was beloved enough to win an insurance commissioner race, whatever that means. Well, I mean, let's be honest, though. A lot of these lower tier, uh, not in importance, but just like down the ticket statewide races, like folks, nobody knows who these people are. Yeah. So... Well, and we have uh, quite a decorated history with our insurance commissioners, actually. Um, so we have only had three insurance commissioners since 1995. So this is not a term-limited position. One of them was John Oxendine, who served for 15 years before he ran this failed gubernatorial bid in 2010. 
And right after he left office as insurance commissioner, he faced ethics complaints over campaign contributions from insurance companies and then other ethics complaints over the fact that he may have personally benefited from the money that was left over in his campaign account uh, because some of that money was loaned to his personal law firm after he had long no longer been a candidate for anything. He was insurance commissioner for 15 years, and then Ralph Hudgens was only insurance commissioner uh, for two terms. Um, he didn't run for re-election in 2018 after some reporting came out that he overspent his office's budget in a really significant way. Um, and then there were a lot of people that are not happy with where car insurance rates are in the state. Um, so there were a lot of people not happy with his performance in that job either. Um, so we're we're not, you know, we're not Chicago. We're, <laughs> we're not sending every one of our mayors to jail every um, other term, but all of our uh, legally problematic people seem to be finding their way to the insurance commissioner office. So I noticed a tweet from Chip Lake about um, David Schaefer being kind of tied into all of this in some way. And I wasn't really clear if that was meant to be a guilt by association um, insinuation or, or what. Can either of you explain that? Yeah, so the context here is Chip Lake is a Republican strategist, and I don't know that he's working directly for uh, David Schaefer's opponent, but D- but David Schaefer is currently running for Georgia GOP chair. His opponent is Scott Johnson, who is the current chair of the Cobb County GOP, and that election for Georgia GOP chair is actually this weekend in Savannah. Um, so Chip Lake kind of tossed out there that uh, – that Schaefer was on the board of the Georgia Underwriters Association during the time that Beck's alleged criminal activity went on, uh, but Lake didn't really throw out anything more substantial than this guilt by association. Oh, he's on the board. You know, either he uh, is incompetent because he didn't know about it or he was complicit because he did and he let it go, that kind of thing. Uh, the Georgia Underwriters Association has put out a statement saying that investigators believe that GUA is actually a victim in this case, that nobody at GUA knew that Beck was embezzling funds from the organization. Um, And so, you know, I haven't seen anything to suggest that David Schaefer has any problems here or that he knew and was complicit. Um, You know, if this was an effective scheme, and it seems to have been given the, uh, the, the amount of time that that Jim Beck was able to do this for, then I don't know how much you can actually fault Schaefer in that instance. And to me, it smacked of uh, internal Republican politics of people trying to keep Schaefer out of the uh, Georgia GOP chair slot, given that he's a relatively polarizing figure within the party. Um, So let's close out this topic with a discussion of just what is next. Luke, where does this go from here? and, And how do things look for Beck going forward? Well, long term, things look pretty bad for Commissioner Beck. I don't foresee him getting out of this, uh, you know, very unscathed. He's trying to hold on. He really wants to stay insurance commissioner. I can't blame him. Uh, He worked pretty hard to get there and seemed like he probably cheated to get there. So, of course, he wants to hang on to it. Uh, But I kind of think he's probably eventually going to get forced out either uh, you know, resigning in disgrace or uh, getting indicted, you know, getting uh, convicted and uh, you know, thrown in jail. Uh, either way, though, 
um, I'm pretty sure Kemp will get to appoint his successor. So it'll be interesting who Kemp decides to appoint with that opportunity. Since there were two other people that ran for the position, those are obvious candidates. But uh, knowing Kemp, he'll, you know, probably and really honestly, any governor, to be honest, would pick someone from their circle that they trust. And, uh, you know, it'll be interesting to see if it's someone who tries to hold on to the position when they have to run for re-election, like Chris Carr did when Deal appointed him to attorney general, or if it's just a placeholder uh, insurance commissioner. All right. Well, with that, let's move on to our final topic for this week. Um, so last week was veto day for Governor Kemp. The, it was the end of the period that the governor has to consider whether or not to sign or veto bills, the 40 days following the end of the legislative session. And Kemp had some, I would say, sort of medium profile vetoes. I don't think that there was any major bill from session that ended up on this list. But the the ones that are on top of the list for me are he vetoed a bill that would have allowed citizens of the state to sue the state over the laws that it passes. Currently, if you think that a law might be unconstitutional, you as a person can't sue the state without the state's permission. Um, There was a law seeking to change that. And uh, I'll let Luke talk about it a little bit here once we get through the list. But but that law was one or that bill was one that the governor vetoed. Uh, Maybe the highest profile bill was a bill that would have required schools to offer recess to students in elementary school. That was a bill that he vetoed. He vetoed a, a relatively obscure bill that would have enhanced tax break analysis in the state, which I think is an important fiscal issue, but is probably not one that people get really passionate about. And then he vetoed a school safety bill and a a, a few others um, that were also relatively low profile. Let's start with the sovereign immunity bill here. Luke, can you describe this bill for us and what his veto means for, you know, we talked about that campus carry lawsuit a few weeks ago. Can you talk about it in that frame? Yeah. So uh, as you mentioned, Governor Kemp vetoed House Bill 311, which would have uh, opened up the state of Georgia to more sovereign immunity claims. And so he vetoed it. Uh, I I found it really funny because I read through all of his veto statements, and this was the one that I feel like he like qualified the most and was like trying to be like, well, this isn't really that big of a deal that I vetoed it because he was sort of like kicking on that there was other ways that you could still uh, sue uh, the state government. And so there's two interesting parts to this Vigo. There's the campus carry issue, which we discussed last time, and then like the wider implications. So he did not, uh, like he did obviously did not say I vetoed this because it would make the campus carry legislation easier for the, uh, people trying to sue me and my government over this bill I like. Um, and to me, I think that's kind of the unspoken thing here that, they're really doing this to prevent that lawsuit from going forward or similar lawsuits from going forward since they also could face one uh, based off the election machines and all the other controversial issues that they uh, hit on this session. I think this is kind of a way to hedge their bets against anything like that happening. And the reason I feel like that's true is that a lot of this Vigo statement compared to the other ones it hedged a lot and it was 
one of the ones that's more like, I would revisit this issue at another time if this bill was crafted differently and I just didn't like this one because sovereign immunity is tricky, which to be fair is true. So I kind of feel like this is this is him giving himself a little bit of an insurance policy on the campus carry lawsuit and some of the other potential lawsuits that could come forward based off legislation this year. But we might see sovereign immunity come back up uh, in the future just because Republicans generally don't like government and they like the ability for citizens to stop the government from doing things when they don't like what they're doing. But uh, currently they like what the government's doing. So they're preventing people from doing it. Yeah. Megan, the other sort of high-profile bill that the governor vetoed was a mandatory recess bill, and he basically made an argument about local control in his response. What did you make of his veto of the recess bill? I agree with his analysis of it in the sense that he says that local governments should have that control and do have that control, so we're just going to leave that to them. That's basically what I got out of his veto statement, but... I guess my concern is that if someone felt the need to bring this up and to make this law, is there an issue? I, I, you know, I, I can't, I don't have visibility into every local school to know if kindergarten through fifth graders are actually getting recess. And I hope that the school boards are acknowledging and realize that these breaks are very substantial. And the other thing that was intriguing about the bill is that for sixth through eighth graders, it required the local board to either allow or prohibit an unstructured break, which I thought was kind of interesting as it didn't really do anything other than just make them write it down. Yeah, I think, you know, one of the issues that I imagine is at play here in education is that there was so much accountability pressure placed on schools, starting with the No Child Left Behind era in 2001. And it's really continued on. It's kind of been watered down a little bit over time, but schools nowadays have to meet much more strict accountability standards than they did 25 or 30 years ago. And so I think that accountability pressure made recess look like a waste of time when you as a school were being measured on how much you were increasing reading scores, reading test scores, how much you were increasing math test scores. I don't think, though, that this veto you know, that we we were already moving away in education policy from an overemphasis on accountability and an overemphasis on test scores. And I think there's a better understanding now that a more holistic education, which includes physical education and um, the fact that it is just not good for you to sit in a chair for eight hours a day without having a chance to get up and move around. I think our schools were already kind of backing off of that. Um, but I, I imagine maybe there's just some schools where resources are tight or there are other reasons that schools might not go out of their way to provide recess that the sponsors of this bill wanted more of a, a stick to make schools do that. Um, so I would hope that schools are moving in this direction anyways, and that this effort would put, would basically send the message to local school districts that if you're, uh, you know, strapping your kids to chairs all day, all day, that's not the best way to do it. Exactly. Well, and learning through play is so important too. So yeah, the biggest concern is just why, what, what was presented. And I wish I ha could go back in time and get a little bit more context around this bill. Why was this a thing other than what you've already presented, Kyle? You know, was, I guess what I'm asking is, was there a catalyst in Georgia where one of the sponsors knows of an issue? 
I, I can't remember this bill, but like, uh, you know, specifically, I kind of remember some vague conversation around it. It's just like everybody thinks recess is important and kind of passed through like in that context. So I, I think that was the gist of the conversation. I mean, it, this feels like and I, I, I know we're going to get into this, but like uh, the characterization of this like round of vigos was i think bluestein's word was aggressively you know using his vigo pen and that i use quotation fingers around aggressively listeners you could not hear that but i dig it um i don't feel this was all that aggressive like 14's not that much deal in his last year did 21 which was his high but deal also in his last year vigo religious liberty and campus carry and like those are those are pretty big deals whereas really none of these were were big issues and all all of these bills feel like the ones that pass very easily with like two seconds of discussion and not the big controversial issues that you know we spend weeks and weeks on yeah i think i agree i you know there there were some blockbuster vetoes for for Governor Deal. I think he vetoed camp. He didn't veto campus carry in his last year because he signed. No, it he did that in, in 2015. But that was, yeah. But Sorry, yeah, 2016. That, my bad. Between that and the religious liberty veto, none of these were high profile agenda items. I mean, I think the world would have stopped spinning on its axis had he vetoed the abortion ban bill. Um, it would have been <laughs> for the better, but uh, he doesn't take our political advice from us. Um, and so none of the top agenda items for Governor Kemp really didn't get done this legislative session. Megan, what do you what do you make of um, the fact that it seems like most things got done? And, um, you know, despite the fact that it seemed like a crazy and disorganized session, you don't have any major vetoes. You have most of the big things getting done. What did you make of that uh, in Kemp's first year? I, I don't know that I really want to attribute that to Kemp and his first year. I think I might just want to attribute that to the political climate being very do or die right now. You know, obviously, I'm I'm not a fan of Kemp. So I'm again, I'm, I, I'm acknowledging my own bias. I don't really want to give him credit. Be, largely because I don't think it's deserved because I think that you need to look at all of the legislators who worked their tails off this session, even though it was disorganized, but also because, um, I don't, I just think that the whole, the, the, the state of the U S is that if you don't get it done now, it's not going to get done. That just seems to be the, the attitude. He does seem to have dug up enough controversy. I mean, he, uh, today on Wednesday, the day that we're recording, he, uh, delayed a trip to LA um, the Georgia governor in the last few years has made an annual trip out to LA to uh, basically thank Hollywood and the film industry for making such a big investment in Georgia. Uh, Kemp had to delay that trip. He may never get to go uh, because of blowback over the abortion bill, the abortion ban bill. Um, he, I think is, as you're saying, Megan, I think he's taking his shots early um, because I don't know. I think I think he's dredged up enough controversy that he's definitely not a shoe in for re-election. I mean, he's got a long way to go, but uh, he's certainly not giving himself a smooth glide path early in his term. Well, what I would say in contrast is I, I feel like this is a session very, very much defined by Kemp. I feel like 
most of the things that happened were because Kemp was a new governor with a new lieutenant governor and Ralston was sidelined. I don't think we would have saw the bills that we did in the fashion that we saw them. I just feel like if if Ralston had not been sidelined or if Deal was still our governor, I don't feel like we would have saw this version of this abortion bill go through just because of how controversial and harmful it's been for the state. And then the other thing I would say that, you know, is going to be really interesting is, as we mentioned, pretty much all of the bills that Kemp vetoed aren't that interesting. And the, like, really high-profile controversial bills... Kemp signed. What's going to be really interesting is Deal's big vetoes usually came in election years. And so next year will be an election year, not for Kemp, but for the rest of the legislature. So I think it's going to be really interesting to see when the Republicans are throwing out those really red meat bills that they want to campaign to their base on when they have to win a primary in a couple weeks after session. I want to see those Vigos because I think that's going to define what kind of governor Kemp's going to be versus this this first round. Well, but I think the thing to add to that, Luke, is that Kemp has really gone all in on the red meat strategy. I mean, the abortion ban bill politically is going all in on that strategy. And so will he actually have more pressure to sign some of those red meat bills or does Ralston kind of regain his footing and say, hey, these red meat bills, yeah, they're going to make sure that you don't lose your primary out in rural Georgia, but they're things that are hard as hell for my suburban lawmakers to defend. And the fact that suburban lawmakers already have to defend the abortion ban bill, if you add more on top of that, um, you're making their task for reelection really difficult. And that is the path through which a democratic takeover of the state house runs. I mean, you're you're not going to win back democratic seats in in rural Georgia where these red meat bills are um, are gospel. So, you know, does he feel pressure to sign the bills because that's his political strategy, or do we see a comeback of the more moderate suburban interests that may actually force some of those vetoes? Will be something to watch. Tune in to Peach Pog in January. <laughs> <laughs> Um, Megan, I know there was one other bill that you wanted to talk about. Um, and I actually had not even heard of this bill, uh, until you added it to our list this week. What was this other bill that governor Kemp vetoed? So it was related to official police vehicle use. Um, it would have allowed for police officers to use their vehicle for, um, like off duty jobs, which to me is kind of asking for some trouble. The, the argument that I can make against it is that, you know, working for a tech company, you're not allowed to take home your company's computer and do a whole bunch of personal and or side hustle work on it. That's just it implies that the company is supporting you, is endorsing whatever work that you're doing, as well as it is using one of their assets that they've paid for. So to me, it makes perfect sense for police officers not to be able to use their cars for off-duty work. And I... It's it's one of the few things that I agree with his veto on. So I just wanted to call it out. Yeah, I think maybe it, to me, just what comes to mind hearing your description is blurring the lines between on-duty and off-duty. So if you're regularly using your police vehicle while you are off-duty and working some other job and you see a crime being committed, do you feel more empowered to, you know, 
try to, you know, pursue a suspect or apprehend somebody. If you have your vehicle with you, I I think that could extend to if you have your firearm with you. Um, I guess it, you know, it, it probably should spur a conversation about maybe more concrete lines between on duty and off duty. Right. Well, and to be clear that it it does mention specifically the vehicle is the only asset. So like firearm being an asset um, wouldn't technically be allowed to be used either. But, you know, that's not to say that somebody's not armed with their, you know, state asset firearm and then ends up using it anyway. So there's there's nothing to really prevent that other than policy. Um, But I just found it really I, I approve of this message, Kemp. Keep keep state jobs separate from from side jobs. The other thing that helps to blur these lines, Kyle, is that the jobs, it, it especially mentioned in the bill that the jobs that they would approve vehicle use for are jobs that require police officer, like a pre, pre, police officer experience as a prerequisite for the job. So it would be something that is security related more likely than not. Which again, bl- goes to what you were saying about blurring the lines. Yeah, and I think if so, if maybe this is you know the the state wanting to avoid some liability on their own part of somebody working a private security job and then doing something they shouldn't be doing at their private security job with their uh, state or uh, local locally provided uh, police vehicle. So yeah, probably probably a good, the right move for the state there. I think one of the interesting trends that I noticed about the vetoes what was that they are all, not all perhaps, but a lot of them are topics that are very personal and look very bad to oppose. Because I was looking through them and some of them, especially like the police vehicle bill that I mentioned a second ago, I was like, how did these even make it through session? How how was it that these passed both chambers, this does this bill doesn't really say anything or do anything. But then I started looking at the content. I realized, okay, this is about supporting police officers. No one wants to be seen as not supporting police officers. Um, one of the, the school recess one, even if it didn't really do a whole lot, is seen as supporting education and supporting children. So of course you don't want to be seen as not supporting children. Um, the tax break analysis bill, it's one of the ones that kind of looks good for the state to be doing its due diligence. So you don't want to be seen as you know, not allowing the state to do its due diligence. And then the school safety bill, same thing with the kids. You don't want to be seen as putting, you know, putting students in harm's way. So I think that's why a lot of these passed. And I think that the legislators might've been doing this as a, um, a tactical move and then making Kemp say, okay, these bills aren't worth signing and then letting him be the heavy. Yeah, that's a good point. I think often, um, you know, law, it, lawmakers kind of look to the governor to take some of these punches if, you know, particularly since he's not up for three years and they're, they're up a lot sooner than that. Um, so, yeah, I, I did find just to, to wrap with the, the tax break one, I, I just found it interesting because he was one of the few Republican candidates who specifically called out reviewing tax breaks as something that he was supportive of. He was supportive of a state Senate study committee back at the time. Um, he had sort of a technical reason for vetoing this one. He thought that he wanted a more independent analysis. You know, I don't I don't know enough about the issue to know how valid that is or if there are ways in which he 
is saying he wants an independent analysis, but really he wants one that's favorable to his policy views. I think we'll see it, you know, basically what comes next. And if Kemp affirmatively does something to implement the vision that he talked about on being fiscally responsible with tax breaks. Um, So I think it's too early to judge on that. Um, But it was a, a veto that just caught my eye given what he said during the primary. All right. Well, with that, uh, let's leave it there for the week. Uh, Thank you all for sticking with us for a long episode. And thank you, Luke and Megan, for joining on the podcast today. Happy to be here. Always a blast. All right, team. We'll talk to you all next week. Bye. Bye. That's our show for the week. If you like what you heard, share the show with a friend and go over to iTunes and give us a rating or a review. It really helps other people find our show. We'll be back with another episode of Peach Pod next week. Until then, take care, y'all.